Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 to 13. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for short times as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. My friends, this is the holy, inspired, God-breathed word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week in our Hebrews series, We went over how the Christian is to persevere in light of the exemplars of the faith from chapter 11, but ultimately looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the metaphor used used by the author to illustrate his point, as we've learned last week, is a long foot race, a long race of endurance, a marathon, so to speak. But today, from verses 3 to 13, we'll see that he'll use a second sports metaphor, this time of a boxing match. And just like the apostle did in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, where he says, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, we will go into this sports metaphor of boxing in this passage this morning. So let us go to verse 3, and it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now this is the same theme carrying on from verses 1 and 2, but we ought to know that he is still talking about Jesus Christ. So he starts with verse 3 by saying, Consider him, meaning Jesus. And the word consider is from the Greek word, Analogizomai. Analogizomai. It means to think carefully. It means to analyze. So who or what are we to analyze deeply? Jesus Christ. And we went over how Jesus Christ in verse 2 despised the shame and endured the cross. And it's after saying this that the author now is bluntly telling his readers 
to deeply think about the suffering of Jesus Christ, the suffering that Jesus endured. And the reason for this is to exhort his listeners so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is a pastoral exhortation that's given because it seems as though the Hebrew recipients might have been experiencing weariness and faint-heartedness. The entire 11th chapter was given to us, these exemplars were given to us because he wants to emphasize that above all these exemplars, as great as they were, he wants to have Jesus to be the ultimate example for you. Jesus Christ, knowing full well that he would have to suffer and endure, didn't allow weariness or despair to deter him from obedience. And the author here is exhorting his readers to deeply analyze this. Because it looks as though the Hebrew audience had already gone through some hardships. From the looks of chapter 10, they may have been expecting even more to follow. And so it's as if the author is encouraging his listeners and readers now. Now is not the time to give up. Don't lose heart. Look to Jesus who suffered greatly but endured. This connection is progressive from the end of chapter 10 where it says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So faith and perseverance go hand in hand. And if chapter 11 was about faith, then chapter 12 is about persevering or enduring. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is where the boxing metaphor starts to come into play. The word for struggle in the Greek is antagonizomai, antagonizomai, where we can see where we get antagonist or opponent. Both the words for struggle and resist that we see here in verse 4 are terms appropriate for athletic language. And last week I had mentioned the foot race that was the first of five games in the Greek ancient Greek games, the last of the five games is a boxing match. So we are no longer in the foot race of verses 1 and 2, but we're now in a boxing arena where bloodshed is expected and sometimes even death. And the shift in metaphors is appropriate because of what he's trying to say in this verse. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That means in your fight against sin, where sin is the opponent, where sin is the antagonist, you have not done your utmost. The last boxing match was the, in the pentathlon. It was last because it was considered to be the supreme test of the games. Bloody wounds weren't only commonplace, it was expected. And so when we bring it back from verse 3, we look at Jesus' sufferings. He had to suffer the most degradation and shame, a hostility not only undeserved but completely unwarranted because he was innocent and absolutely pure. And compare that with a congregation who has not yet even shed blood. That's what he's saying here. 
This most obviously is an, a double entendre if you, of sorts if you, if you think about it, where you see the boxing reference, but you can't help but to see the imagery of the previous martyrs that we saw in chapter 11 to now Jesus, because in chapter 10, they did indeed endure persecution from insults to imprisonments to having their property taken away from them. But even then, they had not yet shed blood or experienced martyrdom. And this is what he's pointing out. You have not yet exercised your faith or endured until you shed blood. And so some might say this to that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't sign up for death. But the writer here is reminding his readers that with sin as your opponent, that is precisely what must be put on the line. With sin as your opponent, that is precisely what we must be willing to put on the line. So looking to Jesus, Christians are summoned to a firm resolve in contending for the faith, regardless of the cost, even to the point of shedding blood. These are strong statements that he starts out with. So he's going to qualify in the next few verses. In verse 5 and 6, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, hearing what the author just wrote could possibly dishearten the reader to the point of maybe even despair or at least some level of uncertainty. You know, you might be thinking, wait, is it that serious? Is the Christian faith that serious? It's as though he expects this, this kind of response when he writes the following verses because now he starts to encase suffering. Interestingly enough, he encases suffering as discipline. And not just any kind of discipline, but the discipline of the Lord. And so he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. And before that quote, he leads off the quote by reminding his audience that God addresses his people as sons. Just like we sang in the song today. You're my true father and I thy true son. And so what's that all about? Does this mean sons and daughters? Is that what they meant? No, that's not what the writer meant. He meant sons. Again, he is reminding them that God addresses them as sons. That means they already knew that all of them, the whole church, they were sons, and he's reminding them that they, the church, are God's sons. Where does God do this? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. It says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And he was speaking to all of Israel. So yes, there is a specific exhortation the writer references from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's the exhortation that God disciplines his people as a man would discipline his son. I thought it might be apropos to take some time to explain the difference between a son and daughter according to the Bible. It might be confusing to some, perhaps. I don't think so. But just in case, I think it needs to be said that this doesn't mean that a daughter is lesser than a son. In the Bible, that's not true. 
It's not true in life or any sort of reality. The daughter is not lesser than a son, far be it from the truth. If you went over the story of Jephthah with me on that Saturday morning, then you are familiar with how he made that tragic vow and essentially sentenced his young daughter to death. But before his daughter was put to death, she made one request of her father. She asked him if she could go mourn her virginity on the mountains with her companion, on the mountain with her companion for two months. She made one request, and it was to mourn her virginity on a mountain with her companions for two months. And this was such a big deal. This event was such a big deal to the Israelites. In the book of Judges, that it says it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah. I am afraid that this significance might be somewhat lost in our generation today. Why would anyone mourn someone's virginity to that extent? What does that even mean? Well, in today's society, some might even wonder why if keeping her virginity was was such a travesty, why don't she just go and, well, lose it? If it's such a travesty, just go and lose it then. In that regard, I've heard similar sentiments regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, where people would half-jokingly say, well, that Jesus better not come until I get married, or something to that effect. Well, I'm afraid, even if it's a half-joke, you don't know what the parousia, or the second coming, is about at all. Jesus' return is the consummation of all things. That means all of creation is yearning and groaning for Jesus to return. And everything that this life pointed to will be consummated. That means it will be fulfilled upon Jesus' second coming. Yes, that even means marriage. You'll see that marriage in this life will be but a shadow of what it pointed to when Jesus returns. It's because of this lack of faith and knowledge that we would even half-jokingly say things like that. But let me bring it back to the morning of the virginity of Jephthah's daughter. Despite what you might think, people in the ancient world knew the gift that daughters brought. Uh, yes, the daughters would leave their father's house to join her husband's. That's true. But what they brought with them is the incredible gift of life. Without the wife, the house is barren. And that means it will not survive. While daughters were sent, they brought with them this incredible gift of life, the power that they had to give life to the household they were married into. And of course, I mean life in the multitude of its dimensions. This is an incredible gift that daughters would bring to a family. This is why the mother of King Lemuel gives such a detailed description on what kind of woman he should marry in Proverbs 31, because it is a big deal. I don't want to take too much on this because this chapter isn't talking about daughters, but it's talking about sons. So the son's role was to take on the father's name and to carry out his traditions 
to the generations after as well. It was to survive as heir and to continue on his legacy. So even before the father would pass, though, his son would be trained to take on a multitude of roles in the father's house. So when God refers to his people as his sons, he is referring to many things, yes, but he is referring to them that it is someone that will stay in his house, an heir to the house. And if you are a son, as an heir, you will invariably get disciplined. A son will get disciplined. Discipline doesn't only mean punishment, while it does encompass that dimension. Discipline is everything from training, instruction, guidance, reproof, correction, and yes, even punishment. But what are you being trained for? What are you being trained for if you're being disciplined? It's to live the obedient life meant for God's family. And there's a certain level of discipline only meant for a family that we see. So if, you're, if you are under discipline to whatever degree, the author is saying that you should also see that you are, if you're under discipline, then you should also see that you are in a father-son relationship with God. This is something only Christians can enjoy. And he goes further to note that if the Lord disciplines you, that means he loves you because he disciplines his sons. It means that God is committed to you. Discipline requires commitment. There is a binding of a relationship that happens through discipline. So when you suffer, don't lose heart. Don't be disheartened when you are under the discipline of God. Also, one more thing to note about discipline. Discipline is an intervention. When you discipline your child or someone under your care, you are intervening in their normal course of life. You intervene and stop them from continuing, let's say, to walk into an open flame. When you intervene, when you go in between, that is a discipline. You're teaching them. That's the sort of intervention we ought to see the Lord's discipline when it's on us. So in the next five verses, we, we will see the nature or character of discipline. This will be an exposition of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10 to 11. And so from verses 7 to 8, we'll see the necessity of discipline. Number 2, in verse 9, we'll see the appropriate response to discipline. And number three, from verses 10 to 11, we'll see the benefits of discipline. In the next five verses, he brings up three points about discipline. The character of discipline, the nature of discipline. The necessity of discipline is number one. Number two is the appropriate response to discipline. And number three, we see the benefits of discipline. So the first part, seven to eight, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When you are disciplined, you ought to see it as God treating us as sons, people who are being trained to be heirs of the promise. And you have to endure because it's an essential part of Christianity. It's an essential part of your Christian faith. It's proof that God is your God. 
when he disciplines you. Because the absence of discipline then would mean that you are not his children. An absence of discipline would mean a rejection of God. And the rejection of God should leave you way more despondent than his discipline. It's when God gives you over to your sins, like it says in Romans chapter 1, when God gives you or a nation over to their sins, when a nation revels in their sins, and a nation does whatever they want in sin, it's a sign of God's rejection. People who do not get disciplined are illegitimate sons. Illegitimate sons do not enjoy the privileges then of being in the family. They don't share in the table of the father. They do not receive the inheritance. Then, would there be any son that wouldn't receive the father's discipline? The answer that people would have thought in the ancient times would have been, absolutely not. Because it was the father who was responsible for the disciplining of children's for the, the disciplining of children in those days. The father would have absolutely wanted his children not only to know and appreciate the culture and traditions of his family, but also he would want to know, he would want his children to know and experience the approval of God, of Yahweh. And I don't think that that should be that different in our families today, especially if you're a godly family. That's what you would want too for your child, wouldn't it? So discipline is absolutely necessary in the Christian's life because it is a proof of sonship. Going to the second point in verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? The phrase besides this signals that there is something furthermore that is going to be developed and explained. On discipline. In verses 7 to 8, we saw that discipline is purposeful. An absence of discipline would have meant an abandonment from the Father, but we see a second aspect of discipline. It says here, we respected them. Children, especially their sons, need their fathers for discipline. But the correction also leads the child to respect their father. One of the ways my father would discipline me as a teenager was that he would sometimes call me into his study. And he would sit at his desk, and I would stand in front of his desk, and then he would start to lecture. And at the time, it felt like the lecture was about three hours long. And I would be standing there listening, and he would be sitting behind his desk. But I would be standing there listening, and I would get to see how he reasoned. He would put point after point, point behind point, on why this course of action in my life was foolish and why it disturbed him so much. And maybe at that moment, I didn't appreciate or I couldn't fully appreciate the discipline that was being given. But it wouldn't be too long after that, I would start to begin to appreciate his words. And now as an adult, I realized it was that discipline that clothed my spirit. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, it says, Hear, my son, to your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. They are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. 
And here the author is saying that on one hand, when you receive discipline from your earthly fathers, even though they were not perfect and sometimes they were severely wanting, you respected them for that. So you should subject yourself even more if you wanted to be wiser. Now let's say you didn't have a father growing up or that your father was absent. Then I would think that this verse would hold a deep value in the sense that you may have yearned for that kind of righteous discipline. Is that not true? How much more then, the perfect father, the all-wise father, the father of spirits. The father of spirits is a designation to God in Numbers chapter 16, 22, and 27, 16. When the people of God would bow down in reverence, they would call him the father of spirits. What that meant was they knew that all authority on earth and in heaven belonged to God. And as such, we owe him our ultimate allegiance and devotion. We, in his discipline, learn to put ourselves in more subjection to God because of who he is. And as we do, we find that we live. Life here not only refers to the life we have here on this earth, but it's referencing the eschatological salvation as well, the ultimate and eternal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I say, in God's discipline, we live. That's something that we should remember. In God's discipline, we live. Going to the third point now in verse 10 to 11, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here again, we are reminded of the imperfect discipline we receive from our earthly fathers, contrasted with the perfect discipline of the heavenly father. No matter how good or well your earthly father trained you, there is always a certain level, well, there is always a level of uncertainty. Sometimes they would discipline us in anger. Sometimes that discipline was actually unjust. And there is a limit to their discipline. And it says here, because it's for a short time. Now you compare that with the discipline of God, the one with perfect wisdom, who has a also who also has a perfect concern for your good, for your well-being. It can feel painful, but it's for a moment. But you know that it's good for you, and you're shown that so that you can endure. Over the, last, over the course of the last month, uh, you may know that I have been to the ER and in surgery and multiple places in the hospital for my mouth. And during those times, what they would do is they would put a needle in your arm to start an IV drip. And honestly, honestly, I, didn't, I don't mind. Um, it's not even that painful right? when they first put that in. My wife said it's, says it's incredibly painful for her, though, so I believe her when she says it. But something to know is that the IV drip isn't just there to put saline solution into your system. It's to get your vein open so that when the doctor or nurse 
comes by and they need to put something in your system, they don't need to reopen your vein every time. Your vein's already open. So whether I needed some painkillers or antibiotics or the general anesthesia that I had, all they had to do was put it in. Even when I got the CT scan, they had to put some kind of iodine solution so that they can see the things that were happening in my body. And the point is that through one initial IV drip solution, I was able to easily get administered all these other things that I needed. And because this was sort of an extreme circumstance, I'm very thankful that I received all the things that I needed quickly and appropriately. So maybe the initial acute pain that you suffer, it might lead you to some resentment, maybe even a rebellious attitude of a certain degree to God. But as you see the fruit of discipline, as you've seen the fruit of discipline in your life in all these years, this should help you put you into a place of peace because it will help you yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Because what is the goal of discipline? And that's what this section is talking about. The goal is to bring the disciple of Christ. Again, the word disciple comes from discipline. The goal is to bring the disciple of Christ to spiritual maturity. To be ready. To be ready as what? To be ready as heirs of Christ or heirs with Christ. What this then would imply is that without discipline, it is impossible to be disciples. Without discipline, it is impossible to share in God's holiness. The sufferings in this life was meant to shape and form the Christian to give him or her the character of godliness. It's no wonder that when you remember the toughest spiritual battles in your life, you remember it because once you've come out of it, you are no longer the same person you were before you got into that fight. If there is a spiritual battle ahead of you, then fight the good fight of faith. It is for God's glory and your benefit that you endure. Let's go to the final two verses. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. We return from the short exposition of Proverbs 3 back to the boxing metaphor. Drooping hands and weak knees are major signs that a boxer is not winning. When a boxer's guard starts to come down and his legs become like jello, you know he's not winning. You know that he's in major trouble. Here, the author is saying again that he is seeing the hands and knees come down and start to shake, and that you should be incredibly alarmed. You can almost picture a coach yelling at his boxer, saying, pick up your guard, pick up your feet. All of this from verses then, all of this from verses 1 to 13 is to renew the resolve of the disciple of Christ. They need to be reminded that you as a disciple, you're in a fight for your life. The Christian's life isn't a walk in the park. 
I'm not sure who told you. If you think this, I'm not sure who told you that once you became a Christian that all, the, all, all of life is going to be butterflies and candies. If you were told that once you became a Christian that life would be easier, you have been deceived. You've been bamboozled. Our brothers and sisters all around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world are being persecuted right now in this moment. They are being persecuted for Jesus' name. But they hold fast because they know what's at stake. They were shown the prize that they ought to run toward. Every Saturday for the last 40 some odd weeks, we have been praying for a country on the Open Doors World Watch list. They have a top 50 list of countries that persecute Christians at a very high or extreme level. And according to them, in the top 50 countries alone, in just those top 50 countries, we have over 312 million Christians that are facing this kind of high-level and extreme persecution. And I'll give you an example. China, China's not even ranked top 10. China is ranked 16. Just in the last few years, they closed down hundreds of churches, a multitude of pastors, and members have been detained or arrested. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but there is no due process. They don't get a trial. They're just in jail. Until when? Until whenever. Recently we saw, you might have heard, that online Bible sales have been banned. And the communist government has installed hundreds of millions of cameras designed for facial recognition and many of them they place purposefully near churches so that they can identify who's, who's attending those churches. And if you're a church leader, you're pressured to join the quote-unquote state church, what they call the three-self-patriotic movement. That's where the government controls how you worship God. And you may not have known this, but teaching anyone under 18 about the Christian faith is illegal in China. But even under this intense scrutiny and pressure, Christians there continue to gather and teach and are continuing to pay the price for doing that. So drooping hands and weak knees is a picture for us, someone that's thoroughly exhausted. The exhortation by the author here is to remind us who you ought to emulate, who you ought to imitate. It's Jesus Christ. When you examine and consider Jesus Christ, it gives you the reality of your situation. The reality of our situation is that we are in a deadly fight against sin. And that last verse, to pick up our feet, so to speak, it means to get your footwork back in order so that we may be healed. This last portion connects us to our passage for next week, but getting your footwork back forcibly means you need to get that spring back in your step. Otherwise, if your heels touch the ground, you guys know a boxer, when a heel touches the ground, the guy's done for. There's no dodging, there's no movement, he's just a sitting duck. However, I believe that in addition to that, the author is alluding to how God is promising a renewal in your spirit as the father of spirits. It's God who will ultimately preserve his saints. It's up to us to trust in his discipline. 
and continue to fight the good fight, looking to Jesus, analyzing Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. And so I hope that you will be exhorted and encouraged to live that life that God calls you to. He is disciplining you because he loves you, and he is raising you to be heirs with Christ, heirs of the promise. So praise the Lord for all his love and his guidance, the surety that we will always be in his hands, that as we persevere, it is our faith being or bringing forth fruit. Let's pray.